Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 355 with Hitendra Wadwa. Apologies, I've got a bit of a cold in my voice, so I skipped the uh, Columbus Day solo episode, and I'll keep it brief. But you'll learn, one, the five pillars of inner mastery, two, key questions and a framework for daily reflection, and three, two strategies for redirecting your emotions positively. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep355. And now here's Hitendra's story. Hitendra Wadwa is a professor of practice at Columbia Business School and founder of the Institute for Personal Leadership. Hitendra graduated from the University of Delhi in mathematics and received his MBA and PhD in management from MIT. He's received the 2015 Executive MBA Commitment to Excellence Award, the 2012 Dean's Award for Teaching Excellence, and the 2008 Columbia Marketing Association Award for the Most Dynamic and Engaging Professor. Big thanks to Hitendra for sharing his wisdom with us. A big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Hitendra. Hitendra, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience. And, and tell us, what's your role at Columbia? I have a responsibility as a professor of practice in the business school uh, to take our MBAs and executive audiences uh, you know, through journeys to prepare them for this world of dynamic change and uncertainty and you know, fast pace that we live in today. And so um, I have created a class uh, that I call Personal Leadership and Success. And over the last about 12 years, that has been my research and, and my teaching. Mm-hmm. Intriguing. And well, so then you've also founded the Institute for Personal Leadership. And so what is the kind of core uh, work or, or ethos uh, over there? Gandhi, you know, he once said, he said the difference between what we do and what we are capable of doing would be enough to solve most of the world's problems. And so my aspiration in building this class was to say, hey, listen, you know, we have these incredibly talented, very aspirational MBAs, you know, and the executives who come over to Columbia. And they're really, in many ways, they're really aspirational and really talented about finding a way to master the universe. But what about, what about finding a way to master your own self as a starting mm-hmm. point of the journey? And so the thesis in personal leadership, both in the work at Columbia and then the Institute, is that there is so much more to our potential than we tap into on a, on a normal day. And what if we were both able to, for our own selves, and for the individuals and teams and organizations and communities that we serve, if we were able to get all of us you know, to our fullest potential, to be at our best in every moment and every day, what kind of a team and an organization and a product and impact and a life that we could build. And so uh, that's really, in a sense, what we do at the Institute is uh, take the research, take the teaching that I've been doing over the years at Columbia, and put it out there for individuals to be able to tap into through the content we create, through the digital learning journeys that we offer, and then also to, to organizations to help them support the individual team and organizational transformations that they might be engaged in. Okay, really cool. And so now you talk a lot about inner mastery resulting in later on outer impact. Can you orient us a little bit to this, this concept? Sure, sure. So outer impact to me is any or all of the kinds of, you know, aspirations and hungers that we have from the outside. You know, we want 
people to like us, to support us, and to be open to being followed by us, to be inspired by us, to to change their behavior on the basis of what we are saying and doing. And, and as a result of that, to be able to launch products and manage teams and deliver great outcomes to the world and bring about positive change. And your role of that is the outer stuff, mm-hmm. you know, life and leadership. And the the uh, you know the, the the mainstream the 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 conventional view of how to do that is that we have to define certain qualities or attributes of what makes or great leadership on the outside to have that kind of an impact, isn't it? So it could, could be something today around, you have to be very adaptive, you know, as a leader, mm-hmm. constantly evolve and pivot based on what changes you're seeing around you. But on the other hand, you also have to have grit, you know, you have to have tenacity. Yeah, stick with it. Fight. <laughs> stick with it. Yeah, exactly, right? And then, um, you know, and then you have to be very extroverted because there's a very gregarious outer energy that you need in order to kind of thrive and flourish in the world of people. But on the other hand, there's Susan Cain, and she's telling us through her book, right, that there is um, a lot of power to introversion, to um, the quiet kind of character of a leader who seeks to be the thoughtful, quiet, empathetic listener in the room and, and everything in between. So, you know, you, you want to be very connected today in the world of social media and, you know, never eat lunch alone and, but, you know, build your network. But on the other hand, you also have to be very, you know, disconnected because you want to practice mindfulness and meditation and be the reflective leader, not the one who's just constantly in the fray of life and you know all that. Right? And so if you take all of these qualities, the research I did convinced me that we had to face up to the truth. And the truth is that we are being asked today to be everything and the complete opposite. And I mean, there's just no way there is a simple winning path, a humanly achievable path to getting there. Unless you do something like what Einstein once said, you know, he said that no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. And so in this case, to me, this obsession with outer behavior and outer speech, what we are saying and what we are doing as a way through which we'll have outer impact limits us from recognizing that the greatest lever that we have, the greatest power and possibility that we have is to, in fact, cultivate what I call your inner core. And your inner core is this stable, pure, intentional, purpose-driven, wise part of yourself, your best self. That um, and all of us have caught glimpses of, some of us have more systematically cultivated. And, and when we operate from that inner core, we are just able to, in the moment, operate on the basis of intention, not just instinct. Be able to bring all the appropriate facts you know, to bear, rather than have biases and distortions that... Uh, you know, that blind us, be able to make decisions with a certain amount of, you know, thoughtfulness and freedom rather than attachment and insecurity. So, so the, so the idea behind inner mastery is not as much to, in a sense, retrofit, you know, some, some wisdom from the outside or some new skill from the outside, as it is to invite people to reflect on and deepen their connection with their best selves. And to continue over the course of their life to not merely be um, committed and, and obsessed with the outer impact, but also with the um, deepening of their immersive living and leading in that inner core, knowing that when they're doing that, they are going to be able to operate and bring their best energy, the best consciousness, the best thinking, the best judgment on the outside. So inner mastery leading to outer impact. Okay, understood. And so then it, it sounds like you're advocating it's not so much about internally trying to be more quiet or gregarious or changing your, your fundamental, you know, natural personality so much as, as as developing into your best self. In fact, my 
hypothesis is that for many of us, there are more possibilities to our personality than what 20th century, you know, science has educated us, you know, confined us to. So when you and I are talking about whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it is true that the Myers-Briggs, you know, suggests to us that you can either be one or the other. You know, it's a very popular tool being used in organizations. But I can also tell you this, most of that has been upended by some of the latest science, which suggests that people have the capacity to also be, if you want, might call it ambiverts, right? Daniel Pink about it in his book, To Sell as Human. There is all this research that suggests that, and you know, I remember when I took the Myers-Briggs when I was at McKinsey, I found a couple of dimensions quite intuitive and insightful, but I really rebelled against a couple of them, like thinking versus feeling, oh, wait a second, why can't I be both a thinker and a feeler? Introvert versus extrovert, why can't I be both? I feel I draw energy as much from outside when I'm with an audience and I'm engaged with them. You know, right now I'm drawing energy from this conversation with you. And at the same time, I have periods where I love to draw energy from within me. So there is an intro and an extrovert, you know, you know, within me. And so to that end, I mean, I just give you a, you know, a great example from history. You take Abraham Lincoln. There's a historian and he, um, he in his study of Lincoln, he said, and he was a contemporary. So he said, I went and spoke with a number of his colleagues and his friends. And he said, I found that there were no two of them who spoke on Link about Lincoln in the same way. Hmm. It is as though he revealed himself to different people in different ways. And he said, some said he was a very ambitious man. And some said he had not an iota of ambition. Some said he was very cool and impassive. And some said he was susceptible to the most intense of tempers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, there is research, by the way, to show that um, when we are deeply infused with our purpose, you know, with something we really care for, then when we have to act out a behavior in the service of that purpose, which is contrarian to our, if you want to call it our personality, we actually feel more authentic acting contrarian to our personality because we are acting in concert with our values in that moment, you know, with our principles in that moment. You know, I, I just as like a simple example, let's say if you really care about supporting your team after they've done like six months of intensive product development work to launch this incredible product in, in your market, right? You might be an introvert, but in that moment, you are actually going to prepare and um, plan that celebration party for the launch of that product. And when you're in there, you're going to go and act out completely opposite your personality, very engaged, very connected, very joyous, very outwardly focused, even though it's against your personality. Not just that you're going to do that, but here's what the research says. You will feel more authentic doing that because you so deeply care about the you know, the, the aspiration of being there to, to celebrate that beautiful moment with your, with your team. And so anyway, so I just want to kind of offer that up to you because, you know, kind of the thesis I want to sort of propose to you and to your audience is that 20th century science, which is still what a lot of us um, operate with, with regard to the uh, education system, you know, that we go through and, and what organizations, you know, also um, sometimes uh, inform and guide us with their cultures. 20th century science was a lot about who we are. And today's science, you know, the 21st century science that is very vibrant and continuing to evolve is actually telling us who we can be. Understood. Okay, cool. Well, so I, I guess well, there, there's a lot in there. And, and I guess I'd like to get your take when it comes to this inner mastery stuff. What are some of the the key, I, I guess, sort of roadblocks or, or things that prevent us from achieving inner mastery? And, and what are some of your, your top suggestions in terms of uh, actions and disciplines and practices for getting there? Yeah, well, that's a great question. It is a journey. It's not just a one-time sort of choice we make and then we just, we just you know, instantly and magically there. 
it's a journey I've seen all great leaders from history kind of evolve and uh, grow themselves along. And it's it's a, it's a it's a journey that is a you know a, a lifetime commitment. And so uh, so there's no one point where I would offer it you know becomes you know perfect and complete. We like to think in in my work you know of of inner mastery along five pillars. You know there's there's purpose which is about a lot of direction alignment for your life as to where you're headed. Stephen Covey used to call it start with the end in mind. You know so what is that end that you have in mind for your life? Then there's wisdom which is about emotional intelligence and your thinking and your mindsets and making sure that these these inner forces are very much harmonized and aligned with your purpose. Then there's love, you know, which is about expanding the heart to seek to take joy in other people's joy. Then there is self-realization, which is to start seeing yourself more, not only through your words and actions or your feelings or your thoughts, but also from the spirit that you embody from within, the, um, the space of pure consciousness, tranquility, you know, pure joy that, uh, Great journeyers, you know, on this path, you know, passage and path of life have uh, have been able to cultivate. So self-realization. And the last one is growth, you know, which is around this continuous commitment to growth. Now, in terms of what, what gets people derailed from inner mastery, one of the key problems is that we get so invested in our duties, in our responsibilities, in our well-intentioned desire to be of service to our friends, to our family, to our colleagues at work, you know, to our organization's imperatives, to, to our communities. That in that process, we get, if you want to call it, you know, spread thin, we get burnt out, we get stressed, we get to digress, digress from that part of our, uh, us, which is really, really at the core. And so one practice that I highly recommend as a way to stay more true to yourself, to your pursuit of your, your own mastery, is daily introspection. Take 15 minutes of time every day. And structure and organize an activity that takes you into a very soul-searching, quiet, honest mirror that you can uh, put on yourself. And it could be a form of thoughtful writing. It could be a um, you know a scoreboard that you create for yourself, where you are checking in on yourself on a certain you know set of values or character traits or what have you. It could be um, you know it could be just a single question that you ask yourself. You know so. Um, Winston Churchill, for example, he used to ask himself, he said, I don't go to sleep at night without uh, challenging myself with the following question, which is, did I do something highly worthy today? And I don't mean just kind of puttering around and doing things. Did I do something highly worthy today? And, um, and you know, here's a man who, who had incredible highs, you know, being um, at the pinnacle of power, you know, 10 Downing Street and prime minister of England at a very critical hour. But he also he also fell from grace, you know, from time to time. And, and in those times when he was um, away from the madding crowds and thrown out of power, how did he um, act? What choices did he make? What behavior did he engage in? This question about, did I do something really worthy today? You know, there's a story where his son once was in a, on a train with him when he had been deposed from the prime minister's office and he was out of power. And his son asked him, he said, Father, you know, we're on this train. We're in California. We're on vacation. Why are you like going to the small cabin and sweating it out in this hot day and doing work right now? <laughs> you know, and after a few hours, when Vincent Churchill came out, he said, son, I can't help it. You know, I must do something truly worthy every day. And what I've done right now is write a dispatch for this newspaper in England, and I'm going to send it. Now, this man, when he was out of power, being um, defeated in the uh, prime minister's, uh, and you know, the political election in 1950, when he was out in 1945, sorry, when he was out of power, he ends up 
doing so much prolific writing over those next five years that he in, ends up winning the Nobel Prize in literature. You know, and so uh, think about that pursuit of mastery when the chips are down. So, so a daily introspection, a daily question that you ask yourself would be one, one strong suggestion. And, and then I do want to sort of just encourage us that, listen, we all fall from grace. We all uh, can't live up to our highest ideals and standards every day. But that should not discourage us. Nelson Mandela was once asked by Oprah Winfrey, you know, she said, you know, Mr. Mandela, you, you, you're so incredible. People, you know, have such admiration and awe of you. You, you are a living saint. How do you feel being like a saint? And he said, I am not a saint. Unless you think of a saint as a sinner who never gives up. And uh, I think that's a great working definition for any or all of us to have. There's an article I wrote in his, um, you know, his, his life and his leadership and the struggles and the mistakes he made and the growth he had to go through. And, and um, you know, I main essence I reached from that was that great, you know, great people take on great causes. And in taking on great causes, they make great mistakes. And through those mistakes, they generate a lot of learning for themselves. And they acknowledge their mistakes and they grow from it. And so that's the growth that I think any or all of us can can aspire to, not necessarily perfection overnight. And do you have any suggestions for other powerful questions that could be candidates for a daily reflection? Well, if you and your audience are open to it, I can share my my own personal favorite. Oh, sure. So um, I think one of the one of the greatest uh, missed opportunities in life is to befriend death. We tend to operate in a world where we almost want to make death invisible. You know, I, I, I smile, you know, sometimes when I'm walking here in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side, there is a funeral home, you know, here. And it is so discreetly architected from the outside in terms of its facade as to be completely nondescript. <laughs> and yet sometimes, you know, the um, garage door is open and I glance inside, I see, I see a hearse that uh, carries people over when, when they passed on. And I feel a great sense of gratitude when I see that because it's a reminder to me about the um, gift of every moment of, of life and the fact that I cannot take it for granted, you know, for myself or for others around me and that it can end at, at any time. And so, so my favorite question is to ask myself, right, that um, if this is the way I keep living my life as I'm living it right now, then at the moment that I'll be dying, as I look back at my life at that moment, will I be grateful and happy or will I have some sincere regrets? That's great. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions that uh, pack a punch? <laughs> You're definitely... Um, make me walk into my sort of uh, magic box and take out whatever tools I can, uh, which is great. I appreciate your service to your audience. Well, Steve Jobs had a similar question. In his question, it was that um, if today, it's a little bit more, even more provocative, today was my last day on earth and uh, I kept doing the things I've been doing, would, would I be happy? And, and he said that if many days passed by where the answer was no, no, I wouldn't be doing this this, you know, this was my last day on earth, then, then he says, then, then something's wrong, you know, in, in my career, in my life. And so that was his question. And the last one I want to offer you is not a simple question, but it's more just a framework, right? And that framework is um, uh, both Nelson Mandela used it and uh, Benjamin Franklin, which is that they created a scorecard for themselves, a simple one sheet, you know, paper with a few um, qualities in it that they were seeking to really work on. And then they would ask themselves, you know, did I live up to that standard? Did I live up to that quality today? In the case of Ben Franklin, he would give himself a black dot if he um, 
if he saw that he hadn't lived up to that quality on a given day. And, uh, you know, he did that for each of those 13, 13 virtues, as he called them, that he had for each day of the week. And uh, in his autobiography that he wrote later on in his life, he reflects and he says, you know, wistfully, he says, I never really reached a point where I was able to clean up my act so well that I didn't have a single, a single black dot on those, you know, weekly grade sheets. But I do to my satisfaction note that over the course of the many years that I tracked myself this way, the number of black dots had decreased. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, and I admire it. It takes a level of, you know, honesty and humility in the first place to acknowledge that it was a black dot day as opposed to, you know, squinting and justifying and rationalizing. Well, I mean, the the circumstances were such that uh, I had to engage in gluttony or else it would have been rude. <laughs> you know, for example, I, I think that was one of his 13. Like, yeah, I think that it's some gluttony and sloth and chastity and uh, assorted virtues there. Uh, so I think that's, I think that'd be the hard part for me is in terms of like finding a way to convince myself that uh, I did not deserve a black dot for my behavior <laughs> after all during the course of this day, because there was some extenuating reason. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. That's very, um, Humble of you to, to operate that way. I'm sure you have a rich, reflective life, uh, Pete. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be doing this show. Since you're mentioning some of his virtues, perhaps you might even remember humility. You know, mm-hmm. as one he added later upon some criticism that he received from a friend of his, you know, who talked about how you are very respected, Benjamin, but you're not very liked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to your point about some of the pitfalls, the other pitfall here is to make sure it's the right scorecard. Right. Well, I want to also get into some of your your perspective when it comes to, you know, when negative emotions pop up, uh, you've got some some thoughts with regard to how we can channel those into effective directions. Uh, how do we do that, you know, in those moments where you're ticked off, you're frustrated and annoyed, enraged, fill in the blank in terms of uh, emotion we'd rather not experience. How do you channel those into, into better places? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, let me show, uh, share a story about Abraham Lincoln, right? So um, he uh, used to often have moments like that where he was very triggered by things that were happening in the field at the time of civil war, a very stressful time, you can imagine, for a leader like him. And he wasn't really in complete agreement or alignment, you know, with this general doing this thing here in this battle or that general doing that thing there. So he would write these letters to these generals where he was extremely vociferous in his criticism to them. And some of these letters, you know, have been received by those generals. And it's in history as to what, you know, what they were told and scolded by, you know, Lincoln for. And then there are a lot of these letters that uh, historians found after Lincoln's passing in the presidential desk in the White House unsigned and unsent, you know, and so they're called Lincoln's hot letters, you know, you might be aware of them. Uh, and, um, and so that's one technique, you know, right there for us, right, which is to engage in this Lincoln-esque kind of grace, which is to say, you know what, I am angry right now. These are the thoughts that I am feeling right now. And I am not going to act upon them. Because I don't really trust myself right now in terms of my judgment. Am I seeing things in the fullest and most nuanced of light as I should? And so maybe in this case, what might have happened is that at the time he wrote these letters, he wrote them, but he went to get his sleep, to cool down, hit the pause button, as I call it. And when he was cooler and calmer, he made a call. And if he felt at that point that it would be constructive for him to express that criticism in just those words, 
he might have sent the letter off. And when he felt like, you know, in the larger scheme of things, I want to keep this general motivated. I think there's a different and better way to motivate them. I kind of want to let them know this, but in a way that will still make them feel empowered and inspired and, and motivated to do the right things. And so net-net, I shouldn't send this letter out <laughs> in those cases. And so a simple, simple path for us is just to keep check on what is happening within us. Not just to focus on the conversation, not just to focus on the body language, but to focus on the inner storms that might be brewing. And if we feel that they are beyond a certain level where we can trust our inner environment, to recognize that our first responsibility is not to act on the inside, but to, in a sense, act on the inside, to um, calm some of these inner inner storms and to um, create a little bit of distance, whether it is just asking for a bathroom break, whether it is just doing a little bit of deep breathing, whether it is stepping away and listening to some soothing music, going and talking to somebody that can distract you and put you in a happy place because that's the kind of person they are, going for a brisk walk, sleeping over it. Any or all of these are mechanisms through which we allow, in a sense, our best self to reemerge rather than get consumed and act upon our inner demons. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so just taking a pause right there is, is one strategy. Uh, any other approaches? Well, I will offer another one which steps the game higher. This one would require some level of basic mastery that then allows us to play this, you know, more advanced game. And so hit the pause button, you know, a couple of other things we can do to just um, get to feel a sense of ownership over our state of inner awareness and mastery is a starting point. But then, but then what you can do is really lean into that emotion rather than seek to distance yourself from it or to express it in some kind of non-constructive way, to lean into it and ask yourself, yes, I am anxious right now. Yes, I am hurt right now. Yes, I'm angry right now. Now, what am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And to, in a sense, recapture agency over the situation, right? Over the problem. And say, I'm going to do something about it. I, I, I'll, give you, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Have you heard of Buck, B-U-C-K? So he is a cowboy. He's, he's a rancher, you know, out here in the U.S. And he was the inspiration behind the, the book, The Horse Whisperer. Okay. And uh, ultimately, the movie that Robert Redford made called Horse Whisperer, on which he was an advisor. Actually, you know, you and your audience might enjoy having him on the show. He's, he's a remarkable human being. Uh, there is a movie, a documentary on him called Buck, um, and I think, again, you and your audience will, will both enjoy that documentary as well. Incredibly inspiring. And um, he, when he was growing up, it's all in the movie, right? So this is not, you know, um, information he hasn't shared in public. But, um, it, you know, when he was growing up, he had an alcoholic father. Uh, if I recall, I think his mother was not there. I think she may have passed away early. And he was, among other things, he was beaten up. You know, he was very good at the rodeo, and so he was doing lassoing and things like that, and his father would encourage him and his brother go out and do that, but then constantly berate them, beat them up, alcoholic, right? And uh, so when he was in his teens, he had to, in a moment of desperation, escape from his home under all the duress and, you know, and stress, and he was raised in foster care. And fast forward now to the time he's an adult, and he now says that the pain that I went through at that time, and when I reconnect with that pain, it motivates me to want to make sure that people around me and that I can serve do not feel ever that kind of pain. Mm-hmm. Not, just, not just people, but even horses. And so, whereas perhaps traditionally, you know, as I best understand, the way the ranching culture has worked in the U.S., horses have been trained under the assumption that the way they will obey is by punishing them if they don't obey, you know, during the early formative training years. 
And so you inflict some kind of pain on them, right? Driving something sharp into the body or et cetera, as a way to make them realize the value of obedience or the risk of disobedience. And so they start obeying you. His approach is one that is based on love. His approach is one that is based on creating a trusted bond between the master and the horse. And he um, goes around the country training ranchers on how to take their horses, some of whom have been very disobedient, and make them really tame, you know, make, make them start to really align and harmonize, you know, their, 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 their actions and behavior with their ranchers, right? And, and so here he is. He is a horse whisperer. He gets these horses to do things that others have not been able to ever get done before. And it's all coming from this pain that he has experienced at some point in his life. And because he took agency over the pain and said, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to channel it in something futile and ineffective. I am going to channel it into something heroic and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, so that became a powerful motivation there in terms of this is his, his sort of standard that of how things ought to be and and therefore he's going to do all the the efforts necessary and associated with with making that come to be so that's cool and, and i wonder then when it comes to anger if you're thinking about using that to channel into into positive stuff i guess in some ways i don't know it's possible to be angry and then just do a lot of things you know, because you're angry it's like this is this cannot stand you know i am you know taking action I am going after uh, this injustice. And, and so, and I wonder though, how sustainable that is. Cause at least for me, you know, that's kind of exhausting <laughs> as a, as a fuel source, uh, that, that sort of anger. So from a hurt, I, I could see that being a little bit different in the sense of th- that is something that I, I know. And, and I just, I, I will not allow others to, to experience. Whereas anger, it's sort of like it, it could come up every time you think about the thing that, uh, that should not be. So is there any sort of nuance in how we go about channeling anger? It's a great, you know, it's a great point. And um, it's funny because, you know, when I, when I started studying some of these great leaders from history, which is one path through which I've sort of built up this, uh, you know, whole, whole, whole teaching and work on personal leadership, I, I'd assume that these were incredibly peaceful, collected, tranquil people. And yet when I really studied their lives, I saw how for several of them, not necessarily all, but several of them, a key source of energy for them was their, in a sense, their their righteous anger against something that was deeply troubling about the social order, you know, of their day. Mm-hmm. And whether it was Gandhi, you know, with his um, views on the um, the the huge um, loss that India was facing with British rule and the subjugation, uh, and the uh, atrocities being committed against the less advantaged, you know, communities in in, in, uh, in society. Martin Luther King, of course, and civil liberties. Nelson Mandela, of course, with what he was doing, Mother Teresa and her work with the, the poor, etc. I mean, many of these people were deeply, 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 if you want to call it angry, but they had come to a place where they could lean into that anger and channel it. The important thing I would offer to you is that you cannot have the tail wag the dog. Mm-hmm. The tail is your emotion. The dog is the purposeful journey that you're seeking to make in life and leadership. And for those of us who have not yet perhaps gained a certain level of mastery. Let's say if mastery could be quantified, you know, from level zero to level 100. If we are at step 34 and Gandhi is at a step 67, right, we shouldn't seek to jump from 34 to 67. That would just not make sense. Mm-hmm. And so in our case, if to your point, we have a certain experience that we've gone through or a certain issue that we're concerned with, where if we get as angry as he, as he was getting, 
we might get burned by it, you know, to your point. We might get consumed by it. And so in our case, at step 34, it might make more sense to use some of the other tools of emotional mastery to create a little bit of distance and buffering from that emotional state because we can't handle it. You know, we, you know, we don't have the voltage in our light bulb to, to be able to handle that kind of power yet, <laughs> right? And so it might make more sense to stay within more confined bounds and to use more confined, smaller sparks of anger to kind of get to a good place if that is the path we want to choose. But as we grow in our capacities, you know, we may be in a position to take on even more heroic causes and to take on even more purposeful, energized, disciplined journeys because we've just built that machinery, you know, within us, both in our brain in terms of the firing and wiring patterns of the neurons and just physically and, you know, spiritually overall. And, uh, and until then, yeah, to your point, you know, we may want to, you know, just stay in um, more bounded space, right? And when we do have those intense bursts of any such emotional state, maybe our best mechanism there at step 34, which could be different from when it is at step 67, our best mechanisms there might be to do some deep breathing, might be to hit the pause button, might be to do some mindfulness or meditation practice or something like that to just get ourselves into into a safe place, into into a place from where the best in us can continue to operate so that the tail, again, is not wagging the dog. But if the dog is strong enough, they can have a strong tail, you know, and still allow the dog to control the tail. Okay, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a, a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Mother Teresa, she once said, she said, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yeah, this is not as uh, much the conventional, you know, kind of study as you'd expect, but one that I have huge regard and affection for anyway, and I think would be, you know, of, of, uh, of value to your audience. So Bonnie Ware is, um, is a palliative care nurse in, in Australia. And she used to essentially look after people who were in the last several weeks and months, you know, of their life, knowing that they had this terminal illness, you know, in most cases, and therefore were starting to plan their exit. And she would ask them this question, what is your biggest regret in life? And the most common answer to that question is the finding from this research that I want to offer to you, know, to, you and to, to all of us, right? What do you think your audience might think is the most common regret of the dying? Oh, they, they didn't um, spend enough time with their family and friends. Yeah, that's um, very similar to what I hear from my uh, students at Columbia as well. And that certainly was one of the regrets that she heard from time to time. The most common regret was that I deeply regret that I was not living a life true to myself. I was living it based on other people's expectations. And I want to I want to just encourage a reflection on that, you know, by by anyone who's listening here today, because um, notice that that pitfall can arise as much in a personal life as a professional life. You know, that pitfall is not about I should have had been hanging out more with my family than my friend uh, than my than my work. What he's actually saying is whether it is family or whether it is work, there is a risk that in our desire to conform, to love and be loved, to relate, to uh, you know, be recognized and rewarded. Is there a risk that we might be letting the clock of time, you know, run out before we have truly lived, truly, truly lived? Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Uh -huh. You know, I, um, if you're open to it, I'll recommend two. Uh, for those who are, you know, drawn to really deeper kind of quests about the, the meaning of life, 
My favorite book is the same uh, as uh, the one and only book that Steve Jobs had on his uh, had on his uh, iBooks, which is um, autobiography of a yogi mm-hmm. by Yogananda. For those who are interested in um, you know a, ma- a more uh, sort of uh, focused uh, commentary on on life and leadership today, my favorite book is Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. And then how about a favorite habit? Meditation. Uh-huh. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and get quoted uh, or attributed to you frequently? The idea that all of us have within us a space of purity, purity of intent, purity of purpose, a very wise and joyful and calm and balanced and secure space within us. And I call that your inner core. There is research today to show that if you go beyond the mountains and plains and rivers into the structure of the earth. You have the hot molten lava, but beyond the hot molten lava, you have a solid sphere of pure metal. They call that the earth's inner core. And metaphorically picking from that, you know, beyond our outer senses, beyond the hot molten lava of our thoughts and emotions that might volcanically erupt it from time to time, beyond all of that, there is the space of pure consciousness within each of us, and that's your inner core, and that's the uh, space through which when you get deeply anchored, you're able to uh, bring out and project and manifest your best. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more and get in touch, where would you point them? Our website is simply personalleadership.com. There are resources there in terms of articles. You know, I've written videos that you can watch and executive programs online that you can take. I'm working on a book that I expect to get published next year. So I certainly would be delighted and honored to have you look out for that as well. Oh, cool. Thank you. And you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? One technique that I learned from a colleague, uh, Adam Bryant. I say a colleague because he and I often have been teaching together. Uh, Adam was the columnist of the New York Times, where he wrote this uh, column for many years called The Corner Office, in which he used to interview CEOs about their leadership journeys. And so he shared this anecdote from one of his uh, or this tool from one of his interviews, where the CEO talks about how she said, I like to practice the MRI rule. And so that's what I'm going to offer to, to your audience as one thing you know, to do at work, or one challenge to take on at work. And the MRI rule is, anytime that you are disappointed, hurt, angry, reactive, impatient about anything that somebody has done, the MRI rule tells you to apply to it the most respectful interpretation. Mm-hmm. Which, before you start impugning the character or start assuming that their intentions were really poor or bad or etc., try to ask yourself, are there any other ways to interpret what happened here? What could be going on in their health? Could they be having a relationship challenge at home? Could they be having a really stressful day with regard to their boss or some other things that are happening? Could some budget have suddenly been cut, cut off from them, you know, etc.? So, without, since you don't know everything, Are there things that you don't know that could be happening that may allow for a deeper understanding of what they have just done or responded to? I found that sometimes it's not even what is happening to them in the present, but what experiences they have gathered over the course of their life that you don't know about. And so when something is triggered from them in a certain way, rather than quickly judge them for it, seek to understand, seek to make the space to recognize that in the rich fabric of their lives, both past and present, 
there is a lot more that if you knew, perhaps you would get much more sympathetic and connected with that one. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, Hachendra, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for, for sharing the, the goods. I wish you tons of luck with the personal leadership and, and all you're up to. Well, I want to congratulate you for the excellent work that you're doing. I've been deeply both inspired and impressed with uh, the path you're on. Uh, this is the uh, modern new sort of you know path to communicating, connecting, and serving you know audiences like yours. So congratulations to you on that. All the best to you and certainly to your audience as well. I'm grateful for this opportunity. Thank you and wish you the best of success in life and leadership by operating from your inner core. I really appreciated Hitender's take that great people take on great causes and taking on great causes, they make great mistakes and through great mistakes, they generate great learning. And that's really reassuring for me as I find, you know, I'm growing and taking on bigger things and screwing up, you know, at a bigger scale and feeling more, you know, nervous, anxious, silly, stupid uh, in making those mistakes. But this is a really positive new frame and spin to put on that. It's like, hey, I'm generating great learning from having done that big mistake bigger embarrassment. So I found that reassuring. I hope you did too and enjoyed the other goodies from Hitendra. And again, you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced. It's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F355. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. You'll hear from mega bestseller sales guru, Jeffrey Gittimer. He has written a book, a work of love on his part about Napoleon Hill's early writings. And we'll hear a little bit about that in the next episode. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader